the key concept I'm going to talk to you about today is strategy, and I want to dive right into a story from the book. After the 1995 release of Microsoft's Windows 95 multimedia operating system, Apple Inc. fell into a death spiral. On February 5th, 1996, Business Week put Apple's famous trademark on its cover to illustrate its lead story, the fall of an American icon. By September 1997, Apple was two months from bankruptcy. Steve Jobs, who had co-founded the company in 1976, agreed to return to serve on a reconstructed board of directors and to be interim CEO. Within a year, things changed radically at Apple. Although many observers had expected Jobs to rev up the development of advanced products or engineer a deal with Sun, he did neither. What he did was both obvious and at the same time unexpected. He shrunk Apple to a scale and scope suitable to the reality of its being a niche producer in the highly competitive personal computer business. He cut Apple back to a core that could survive. Steve Jobs talked Microsoft into investing $150 million in Apple, exploiting Bill Gates' concerns about what a failed Apple would mean to Microsoft's struggle with the Department of Justice. Jobs cut all of the desktop models. There were 15, back to one. He cut all portable and handheld models back to one laptop. He completely cut out all the printers and other peripherals. He cut the development engineers. He cut software development. He cut distributors and cut out five of the company's six national retailers. He cut out virtually all manufacturing, moving it offshore to Taiwan. With a simpler product line manufactured in Asia, he cut inventory by more than 80%. A new web store sold Apple's products directly to consumers, cutting out distributors and dealers. The power of Jobs' strategy came from directly tackling the fundamental problem with a focused and coordinated set of actions. He did not announce ambitious revenue or profit goals. He didn't indulge in messianic visions of the future. He did not just cut in a blind, axe-wielding frenzy. He redesigned the whole business logic around a simplified product line sold through a limited set of outlets. That was a story from another one of my favorite books, a book called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, The Difference and White Matters. And it was written by Richard Rummelt. I wanted to start there because that story to me is a very memorable illustration of the strategy concept. And, uh, and, and in a lot of ways, it ties to the idea that strategy, like positioning, when done well, seems obvious and, uh, and simple. But it's, it's really hard to get right. And, uh, and of course, we know now that Apple went on to become a giant company, uh, arguably the most powerful company today, certainly the most valuable. But that story has nothing to do with that because at the time they weren't facing a growth challenge or even an optimization challenge. Really, Apple was fighting for its life. They were just trying to survive, right? So it kind of, it reminds me of Paul Graham's concept of default alive or default dead, right? Basically the idea that if a company continues on its current costs and revenue trajectory, does it have enough money to survive or does it need external financing to stay in the game? In that story, Apple was very much default dead until Steve Jobs simplified the business so it could survive. So forget about everything that came after None of that would have happened. None of that would have been possible because Apple would not exist today. So why is this book important? Why, you know, why is strategy so important? You know, I think in, in almost every case, it's the difference between success and failure, right? Without good strategy, the only way to win is to get lucky. And games of chance might be entertaining with small stakes, but not when you have everything on the line. Daryl Morey, who's a basketball legend, uh, he, he and Sam Hinkie are responsible for a lot of the analytics that have taken the NBA to another level over the last few years. He was on Invest Like the Best recently, 
he had a whole thread about breaking down the KPIs of a game, basically figuring out how a game works and what are the variables that matter, and then focusing all your attention and optimizing for the variables that will give you an edge. And that's what strategy is all about. So variables like vision, charisma, drive, they don't do much if you don't understand the game you're playing. If you don't understand the drivers that matter in that game, if you don't have a good strategy, you're either playing a lottery with the odds stacked against you, or worse, you're at the mercy of a competitor who's willing to understand the game systematically and who organizes their resources accordingly. So one way I think about this is the difference between being delusional and being prescient, or you could say that, um, say that differently, the difference between being arrogant and being confident has everything to do with understanding the game you're playing at a deep level from first principles and then rigorously maximizing your odds of success by developing a strategy that, that allows you to position yourself to be able to, to win. One key point I want to load into your mind before I dive into the book is that good strategy is a moat unto itself. Listen to this. Unfortunately, good strategy is the exception, not the rule. And the problem is growing. More and more organizational leaders say they have a strategy, but they do not. Instead, they espouse what I call bad strategy. Bad strategy tends to skip over pesky details such as problems. It ignores the power of choice and focus, trying instead to accommodate a multitude of conflicting demands and interests. Like a quarterback whose only advice to teammates is, let's win. Bad strategy covers up its failures to guide by embracing the language of broad goals, ambition, vision, and values. Each of these elements is, of course, an important part of human life, but by themselves, they are not substitutes for the hard work of strategy. So in other words, what Richard is telling us there is, you know, growing through the hard work of understanding your challenge, right? Figuring out what to do about it, and then focusing and organizing resources to execute on that is so rare that you create a competitive advantage just by doing it. And that's the first key takeaway for you. Good strategy is rare and in most cases unexpected, and that makes it a powerful weapon for you against your competitors. The most basic definition of good strategy is this. Good strategy is a cohesive response to an important challenge. So we're going to we're going to unpack that as we go along, but let me repeat it for effect. Good strategy is a cohesive response to an important challenge. It's helpful to delineate that with the negative, right? So what is not strategy or better said what is bad strategy? So listen to this. Strategy cannot be a useful concept if it is a synonym for success, nor can it be a useful tool if it is confused with ambition, determination, inspirational leadership, and innovation. Ambition is drive and zeal to excel. Determination is commitment and grit. Innovation is the discovery and engineering of new ways to do things. Inspirational leadership motivates people to sacrifice for their own and the common good. And strategy, responsive to innovation and ambition, selects the path identifying how, why, and where leadership and determination are to be applied. And then he picks it up again a little bit later. He says, bad strategy may actively avoid analyzing obstacles because a leader believes that negative thoughts get in the way. Leaders may create bad strategy by mistakenly treating strategy work as an exercise in goal setting rather than problem solving. Or... They may avoid hard choices because they do not wish to offend anyone, generating a bad strategy that tries to cover all the bases rather than focus resources and actions. 
And then he also tells us it's not separate from implementation. In other words, it's not decoupled from the specific actions that you have to take. He says, a good strategy includes a set of coherent actions. They're not implementation details. They're the punch in the strategy. A strategy that fails to define a variety of plausible and feasible immediate actions is missing a critical component. Now, right up front, Richard gives us a glimpse of the structure of good strategy with what he calls the kernel. And that's basically the framework or, uh, or the components of strategy. And he goes something like this. He says, the kernel of a strategy contains three elements, a diagnosis, a guiding policy, and coherent action. The guiding policy specifies the approach to dealing with the obstacles called out in the diagnosis. It is like a signpost marking the direction forward, but not defining the details of the trip. Coherent actions are feasible coordinated policies, resource commitments, and actions designed to carry out the guiding policy. So right there, he's, he's basically telling us the hook that you can set in your mind to remember this concept, the thread that you can set that will help you unravel the whole thing when you're putting this into action down the line is three words, diagnosis, policy, actions. And I like to think of this as the why, what, and how, just to remember it more easily. So you have a challenge, the why, why do you have to get organized? What's the diagnosis? Then you figure out what you're going to do about it. That's the what. And finally, you figure out how you're going to do it, right? So why, what, how? Diagnosis, policy, actions. And there's actually a great story that opens up the book. So all the way back, the first page of the book uh, that, that I sort of always picture in my mind when I think of this framework. So let me read that to you. It says, in 1805, England had a problem. Napoleon had conquered big chunks of Europe and planned the invasion of England, but to cross the channel, he needed to wrest control of the sea away from the English. Off the southwest coast of Spain, the French and Spanish combined fleet of 33 ships met the smaller British fleet of 27 ships. The well-developed tactics of the day were for the two opposing fleets to each stay in line, firing broadsides at each other. But British Admiral Lord Nelson had a strategic insight. He broke the British fleet into two columns and drove them at the Franco-Spanish fleet, hitting their line perpendicularly. The lead British ships took a great risk, but Nelson judged that the less trained Franco-Spanish gunners would not be able to compensate for the heavy swell that day. At the end of the Battle of Trafalgar, the French and Spanish lost 22 ships, two-thirds of their fleet. The British lost none. Nelson was mortally wounded, becoming, in death, Britain's greatest naval hero. Britain's naval dominance was ensured and remained unsurpassed for a century and a half. So you can see all the elements here. You have a challenge. Napoleon's going to invade you, and the only thing between you and his army are 27 of your ships against 33 of his. The odds are against you in a conventional battle, so that's your challenge. That's why you have to do something, right? That's the why. So what do you do? You break up your ships into two columns, and you drive them directly at their fleet perpendicularly. So you take a calculated risk that based on this unorthodox approach and the swells that day, the battle will be chaotic, which will give you the edge, will give the edge to your more experienced captains, right? That's your policy. That's your what. And then presumably you meticulously plan and you train uh, with your Navy to be ready to execute this, 
right? You give everyone orders and you build in contingencies and then you go and execute those plans. And that's the coherent action component, right? Not that the plan itself is infallible because things will change during the battle and you have to make judgment calls. But precisely because of that, that's why you train. And so this doesn't guarantee success, right? But that's not what strategy is after. That's not what you're after. That's a bit of a fool's errand. What you want is to tilt the odds in your favor, to create an edge for yourself in the game that you're playing, right? So without this approach, you're disorganized, uh, you're exposed to playing a game with the odds stacked against you. And there's another good excerpt uh, that describes this a little bit. He says, having conflicting goals, dedicating resources to unconnected targets and accommodating incompatible interests are the luxuries of the rich and powerful, but they make for bad strategy. Despite this, most organizations will not create focused strategies. Instead, they will generate laundry lists of desirable outcomes and at the same time ignore the need for genuine competence in coordinating and focusing the resources. Good strategy requires leaders who are willing and able to say no to a wide variety of actions and interests. Strategy is at least as much about what an organization does not do as it is about what it does. So that bears repeating, right? It's as much about what we won't do as it is about what we actually do. And that theme of focus is going to come up again and again all over the book. And certainly if you have experience executing, you probably, you know, that resonates with you. So now before we dive into more details, I want to read to you a paragraph that brings a lot of this together. And I always think the more we review the basic concept and the more we leverage different stories to illustrate, the more it sinks in. So here it is. The core of strategy work is always the same. Discovering the critical factors in a situation and designing a way of coordinating and focusing actions to deal with those factors. A leader's most important responsibility is identifying the biggest challenges to forward progress and devising a coherent approach to overcoming them. So that excerpt has such a high density of insight for me. If you read between the lines here, he's telling us that the prerequisite to good strategy, right? The prerequisite to what he calls the kernel of diagnosis policy in action is a willingness, right? A willingness to focus and good leadership. So focus and good leadership. Those are their prerequisites. If you have that and you're willing to do the work of finding those critical factors, and then you're willing to do the work of designing a way to deal with them, then you're 90% of the way there, right? 90% of the way there. We talked a few minutes ago about the competitive advantage you get just by being organized, right? Just by understanding the game, its key factors, and having a plan to deal with them, that in and of itself gives you an edge. But there's another benefit of this approach. When you do this, when you break things down systematically and, and get organized, you can see your strengths and weaknesses more easily. So by getting organized and aligned with the game that you're playing, you very quickly start to see patterns, you know, areas where you have an advantage or a disadvantage. And that's really powerful, right? That allows you to lean into your strengths and to try to mitigate your weaknesses. So that awareness is huge. I should mention that the book is packed with really interesting case studies. So probably half the book is case studies. And, and you know, some people might not like that because it sort of makes the book longer than perhaps it should be. But what I, what I find really useful is that it's a great reference for me 
to go back and read some of these case studies over time. So I keep this book kind of handy, you know, while I'm working, it's, it's near my desk and I reference it every once in a while. So I can't recommend enough, you know, reading the book in its entirety at some point. So you can get a sense for those or at the very least perusing some of the, the case studies, just so you're aware that they exist, that they're in there and then read them, uh, whenever, whenever they're, they make sense to read for you, whenever you face a situation in which one of those case studies actually gives you, uh, some insight into how you might, might react or, or how you might devise strategy for that particular case. There's one in particular, one particular case study that I want to talk to you about because it is, uh, it's pretty fascinating to me. And this is a case about Walmart. And in particular, it's about how Walmart was founded and what drove its massive growth and, uh, and success. So Richard sets this up with, uh, in the book by saying that in strategic work, we're looking for hidden power. And he refers to this Walmart case uh, when Walmart was a small upstart competing against much bigger companies as a great example of really good strategy that was hard to see, but it's obvious in hindsight. So he sets up the room for the case uh, you know, that he's doing at, at one of his classes uh, by writing a phrase on the blackboard that says, conventional wisdom, a full line discount store needs a population base of at least 100,000. So after writing that on the blackboard, he asks the question, why has Walmart been so successful? And then he calls on, on someone to start the discussion. And this is where it starts getting interesting. So if you're familiar with the case method, the professor is there to facilitate. There's no traditional teaching going on. He's asking questions. He's writing stuff on the board. He's basically acting as a guide more than a prescriptive teacher. And so someone brings up, somebody, somebody in the class brings up Sam Walton's leadership and how he broke the conventional wisdom putting big stores in small towns. So they talk about low prices, talk about uh, computerized warehousing, truck systems, inventory management, all of that, which is part of the case. And then Richard asks them how big were the stores and how small were the towns, right? How did how did computer, computerized logistics system work? And how did Walmart keep its prices low? So then he mentions that at this point, most of the key facts are on the board. You know, by this point, people have discussed the case. Uh, people have, have sort of taken a stand, made different cases for different reasons as to why this is, you know, this is their, their reasoning, their rationale. And three themes start to take shape by this point. So he says, picture three diagrams on a blackboard. He says, the first one is a circle representing a small town with a big box in the middle representing a Walmart store. The second one is a square box representing a distribution center with lines going out that represents trucks distributing products to the 150 stores served by the center, and then lines going back into the box representing those trucks picking up products from vendors on their way back to the center, okay? And then the third one is a point representing Bentonville, Arkansas, with lines going out to the various stores representing the managers traveling to stores on Mondays to pick up and distribute information, then coming back to Bentonville on Thursday for group meetings on Friday and Saturday. And at this point, Richard asks, and I quote, if the policies you've listed are the reasons for Walmart's success, and if this case was published, let's see, in 1986, then why was the company able to run rampant over Kmart for the next decade? Wasn't the formula obvious? Where was the competition? Right? Pretty critical question. So, and then he, he describes what happens typically in this case. Uh, with the classroom at that point, something something like this. So, I, and I quote, silence. This question breaks 
the pleasant give and take of reciting case facts. The case actually says almost nothing about competition, referring broadly to the discounting industry. But surely executives and MBA students would have thought about this in preparing for this discussion. Yet it is totally predictable that they will not, because the case does not focus on competition, neither do they. I know it will turn out this way, it always does. Half of what alert participants learn in a strategy exercise is to consider the competition even when no one tells you to do it in advance, right? Critical there. So consider the competition even when nobody tells you to do it in advance. In fact, you know, when we, when we work, when we're in our companies, nobody's telling us to do anything, right? You and I are just sitting there and we're trying to make decisions. We're trying to make judgment calls. We're trying to work with other people. Nobody's telling us to do anything. But what Richard is, is sort of reminding us of here is you need to consider the competition no matter what, always, right? And it sounds obvious, but I think intuitively you and I are like, yeah, not, not sure I would have gone there next, right? Like it's, it's crucial and in hindsight obvious that anytime someone win, wins big like Walmart, there's likely competition, right? Competition that was blocked or, or that failed completely. So extrapolating, there must have been something that Walmart did or had that competitors couldn't copy or at least weren't willing to copy, right? And in this case, he talks about Kmart being on on the losing end. He says, Kmart was once the leader in low-cost variety retailing. It spent much of the 1970s and 80s expanding internationally and ignoring Walmart's innovations in logistics and its growing dominance of small-town discounting. It filed for bankruptcy in 2002. Then he says, after some moments, I ask a more pointed question. Both Walmart and Kmart began to install barcode scanners at cash registers in the early 1980s. Why did Walmart seem to benefit from this more than Kmart? The punchline, the punchline here is that Walmart's integrated designs, right? Like their, their integrated logistics, their frequent just-in-time deliveries, the large stores with low inventories, the barcodes, the information flows, all the stuff that we talked about being diagrammed by this point on the board, all of these work together, right? It's an integrated system. Each part is designed to fit perfectly with the others, right? So copying one of the parts or a piece of it doesn't do anything for you. You need the whole design and then you need to perfect its operation of it or perfect the operation of it through trial and error, right? So at this point, Richard goes back to the original line about conventional wisdom. A discount store needs a population of 100,000. He mentions that this is based on simple fixed and variable cost dynamics. And then he asks how Walmart broke that logic down. He frames it as a thought exercise. Like, would you buy out your local Walmart? Would you buy out your local Walmart? Why not, right? Like the answer is probably not. Why not? So you and I would immediately answer because it needs to be part of the network, right? The integrated designs, right? We just talked about it. In the book, he says this. It isn't the store. It is the network of 150 stores and the data flows and the management flows and the distribution hub. The network replaced the store. A regional network of 150 stores serves a population of millions, right? Walton didn't break the conventional wisdom. He broke the old definition of a store, which is brilliant. And then he goes on to say this, when you understand that Walton redefined the notion of store, your view of how Walmart's policies fit together undergoes a subtle shift. You begin to see the interdependence among location decisions. Store locations express 
the economics of the network, not just the pool of demand. You also see the balance of power at Walmart. The individual store has little negotiating power. Its options are limited. Most crucially, the network, not the store, became Walmart's basic unit of management. That's such a vivid case study for me, particularly when you think about the policy, right? The policy, the network is the common unit of management. And then you think about the actions, right? Integrating data flows and regional store networks, just-in-time deliveries. Obviously, all of that grew over time, right? It wasn't done overnight. But the point is that Walmart needed to compete with bigger established players when it first started, and it needed to find a way to serve small towns economically. So the story of Walmart is amazing. And so many people have studied it, including people like Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos. So it's well worth your time. Guarantee it. In fact, I highly recommend checking out the various Walmart episodes from David Senra's Founders Podcast and picking up the books he recommends there. Brilliant. You can't go wrong. Well worth your time. There's, uh, there's another interesting case study, actually, about a U.S. strategic defense document prepared by a guy named Andy Marshall, who was a director at the Defense Department from the 70s to the 90s. And he talks about how the U.S. had a war strategy, but no plan on how to compete with the Soviet Union over the long term. And uh, Andy helped draft a document in the 70s on how to use U.S. strengths to exploit Soviet weaknesses. So rather than you know, reactionary escalations or investments, the U.S. would deliberately lean into areas where the U.S. had unique capabilities and where the Soviets had weaknesses to match. And so the document uh, concluded that the crucial area of competition was technology because the U.S. had more resources and better capabilities. And it argued that to compete effectively, they should seek to impose huge costs on the Soviets. And the recommendation was to invest in technologies that were expensive and where the Soviets' counterinvestment wouldn't add to their offensive capabilities. So things like you know more accurate missiles or quieter submarines. So a relatively simple approach, but a big shift in strategy that ended up being massively successful. And here's a good quote. The power of that strategy derived from their discovery of a different way of viewing competitive advantage, a shift from thinking about pure military capability to one of looking for ways to impose asymmetric costs on an opponent. So part of why I like that is because I'm a little obsessed with asymmetric risk. So I perk up anytime I hear the word asymmetric, but it's also another way of, you know, to frame strategy in general and, and reminds me a lot of positioning, right? Leaning into your strengths and against your competitors' weaknesses so you can win. As true in military conflicts or games and sports for that matter, as it is in business. So, okay. At this point, the book transitions to defining bad strategy. And I'll tell you why I like this part. I like this part because it helps outline the edges of good strategy a bit by contrasting it with what is actually not good, right? So the the first of four uh, is fluff, and that is exactly what it sounds like. So this is buzzwords, nonsensical stuff that kind of obfuscates or, or obscures any real substance. Uh, the kind of stuff that after you read it or hear it, you're like, wait a, wait a second, what? Like, wh- what are we actually doing and Why? Uh, and, and Richard is ruthless in a lot of his case studies throughout the book, which I love. For this one, uh, he picks on a bank. Listen to this. Here's a quote from a major retail bank's internal strategy memoranda. Our fundamental strategy is one of customer-centric intermediation. The Sunday word intermediation means that the company accepts deposits and then lends them to others. In other words, it is a bank. 
the buzz phrase customer-centric could mean that the bank competes by offering depositors and lenders better terms or better service, but an examination of its policies and products does not reveal any distinction in this regard. The phrase customer-centric intermediation is pure fluff. Pull off the fluffy covering and you have the superficial statement, our bank's fundamental strategy is being a bank, which is, which is great. Just rips them apart, right? Doesn't say anything. His other example is a bit longer and more nuanced. He does a quick case study uh, from a summer 2000 Arthur Anderson presentation, or sorry, Arthur Anderson presentation, uh, and they were the major auditor that blew up along with Enron. Uh, basically, the presentation extrapolated the advantages of making markets for physical commodities into bandwidth without addressing any of the challenges or backing up its claims with data. So it's all high-level stuff that doesn't tell you anything, doesn't leave you with an understanding of why you would do this or uh, how you would execute on it. And, uh, and he closes the fluff discussion with this. A hallmark of true expertise and insight is making a complex subject understandable. A hallmark of mediocrity and bad strategy is unnecessary complexity. A flurry of fluff masking an absence of substance. So I'll leave the fluff part there and move on to the second type. The second type of bad strategy is not facing the problem. And this one is the most intuitive in the sense that a strategy is a way to navigate a problem effectively. So if you don't define what problem you're trying to tackle, how do you know you have a good strategy, right? For this one, he cites two examples, a terrible approach that embodies not facing the problem and one that does a great job of being super clear on what it's trying to address. So the bad one is from a company called International Harvester. They made uh, agricultural equipment. In 1977, they got a, a new CEO to turn the company around. By 1979, they had produced a big corporate strategic plan that integrated each business, uh, sorry, each business unit's independent plan, uh, where each of them would cut costs, you know, increase market share, ramp up revenue and profits. The problem with all of this is that none of it addressed the big issue, which was their inefficient organization. So apparently, senior employees were allowed to transfer jobs at will, and the company had the worst labor relations in the U.S., so there was a six-month strike that followed cost cuts and uh, and a big CO bonus. They they just they tr they tried to force concessions from the union basically, but they failed, uh, and the company never recovered from it. So on the other hand, there's DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which you may have heard of. Uh, they kind of invented the internet. So l listen to this from their own statement. A basic challenge for any military research organization is matching military problems with technological opportunities, including the new operational concepts those technologies make possible. Parts of this challenge are extremely difficult because 1. Some military problems have no easy or obvious technical solutions, and 2. Some emerging technologies may have far-reaching military consequences that are still unclear. DARPA focuses its investments on this DARPA-hard niche a set of technical challenges that, if solved, will be of enormous benefit to U.S. national security, even if the risk of technical failure is high. That's about as good as it gets in terms of a concise, clear definition of a challenge to tackle. And, of course, DARPA is famous for organizing itself to do that really well, both in terms of its policies and, and structures, kind of the what, and, uh, and the actions that it takes, the how. Okay, the third type, of bad strategy is pretending that setting goals is the same thing as a strategy. So this one is easy to picture, right? A lot of people want to run a marathon. You might set a goal of finishing in three hours. That's awesome. That would be a real accomplishment. Now what? Like, how are you going to do that? Right? Like, 
what, what's your key obstacle? Is your limiter muscular endurance or is it aerobic capacity? Don't worry about what that means. If you don't like, what's your challenge, right? Before you even set the goal, you have to understand the art of the possible. And then you have to understand the key limiters in your way to maximizing that potential. And then in parallel, you can set a goal and figure out what type of training program you want to follow. And finally, you can map out your workouts to execute that training program. But setting a goal in and of itself is useless without the rest, right? So one treacherous kind of psychological trap on this one is the thinking that aspiring to something or trying to be blindly optimistic about it will lead to results. And that's what a ton of self-help books and motivational speakers will sell to us. And look, optimism is a powerful force, but it's dead in the water without rigorous strategic work. And the book outlines a case study of a CEO who had mistaken goals for strategy, and he had set margin and growth goals of like 20% that were two times higher than anything the company had delivered uh, without identifying any key limiters to achieving that, let alone a roadmap for executing towards it. And when Richard asked what has to happen for it to be realized, listen to his response. Listen to what he says. The guy's name is is Logan. He says, Logan tapped the plan with a blunt forefinger. The thing I learned as a football player is that winning requires strength and skill, but more than anything, it requires the will to win, the drive to succeed. The managers and staff in this company have worked hard and the transition to digital technologies was handled well. But there's a difference between working hard and having your eye on the prize and the will to win. Sure, 2020 is a stretch, but the secret of success is setting your sights high. We're going to get moving and keep pushing until we get there. Sounds delusional, doesn't it? Like, you know, so, so maybe that's the right way to frame this one. Like, at least the concept of stretch goals without real strategy work to underpin them. The, the, Richard's response to this is, is great. And this is after he talks about what he is actually recommending. He says, if you continue down the road you're on, you will be counting on motivation to move the company forward. I cannot honestly recommend that as a way forward because business competition is not just a battle of strength and wills. It is also a competition over insights and competencies. My judgment is that motivation by itself will not give this company enough of an edge to achieve your goals. There's also another story in the section about World War I that I won't dive into, except to pull from it this last paragraph, which touches on the, uh, on the critical role of leadership and strategy. It says this, it says, motivation is an essential part of life and success, and a leader may justly ask for one last push, but the leader's job is more than that. The job of the leader is also to create the conditions that will make that push effective, to have a strategy worthy of the effort called upon. And if you've ever worked with me, you've, you've heard me say this before, every failure is a leadership failure for, for the reasons that we just went into. So, um, okay, the last type of bad strategy that Richard tells us about is setting bad strategic objectives. And the best way to introduce this one is with this excerpt, which also touches on the role of the leaders. So it says, being a general manager, CEO, president, or other top-level leader means having more power and being less constrained. Effective senior leaders don't chase arbitrary goals. Rather, they decide which general goals should be pursued. One of the challenges of being a leader is mastering this shift from having others define your goals to being the architect of the organization's purposes and objectives. Okay, so there are two types of issues the book talks about. On the one hand, it is throwing a bunch of stuff into a list, and those are usually things to do, but they're not a strategy. And without a proper strategy, it's impossible to prioritize them. The other thing is setting a blue sky or like a a pie in the sky objective, 
without having a clue about how to get there. And to illustrate this, the book describes the case of a school superintendent in LA who chose to focus on underperformance, but underperformance isn't good enough to form a strategy. And, and that's kind of why I framed the diagnosis as setting the why. So, so the root cause of a problem. Underperformance is an outcome, but to tackle underperformance, you have to figure out why the school district is underperforming in the first place, right? So to recap, if you want to create a good strategy, you can start by avoiding bad strategy, be rigorous, avoid fluff, define the actual problem, don't mistake goal setting for strategy, and make sure your strategic objectives are a bridge between the problem and the actions you should take to tackle it. Okay, so having gone through that, I think it bears asking, why is there so much bad strategy out there? Which is what the book does next. So let me read that to you. It says, bad strategy flourishes because it floats above analyses, logic, and choice, held aloft by the hot hope that one can avoid dealing with these tricky fundamentals and the difficulties of mastering them. Okay, so look, good strategy is hard work. It's not glamorous. It requires effort. It can be ambiguous. It can be frustrating. There's no immediate gratification. It's so much easier to just land on the first smart sounding idea that comes to mind and just start running with it, right? Most people fail because they're avoiding the work. You have to tackle the work and you have to make hard choices, particularly about what you're not going to do. And a lot of people fail because they're unwilling to choose between options. And some people think that they're preserving optionality, right? But options have a cost. So ideally, you're being just as intentional and judicious about what your optionality uh, is costing you as you are about each option itself. And so that's the first reason, right? The second reason um, is a lot of people try to shortcut the work by using templates or frameworks. And templates can be great, but you need to do the work to understand when they apply and when they don't. And filling in the blanks without thinking, without digging into the data, without wrestling with the complexity and, and the nuances of a situation doesn't get you very far. The third reason is that some people are big believers in the idea that you should think positively, that, uh, that any negative or, or challenging thought kind of inherently impacts your ability to achieve whatever you're trying to do. And, and that's kind of fair, but the answer isn't to avoid thinking about those challenging things. It's to get better at controlling your emotions, right? Like figure out how not to get stressed by challenging situations or, or by mistakes or whatever emotion or thinking feels debilitating. Get a sports psychologist, right? If you need to, 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 to help you, but don't think don't stop thinking, right? Like don't stop thinking for crying out loud. Okay. Those are the three major failure modes. Um, I want to double back on making hard choices for a second and talk about an Intel case study from the book featuring Andy Grove, who is one of my favorite people to study. If you don't know who he is, he's like the Warren Buffett of, of operations and, and leadership. And I can't recommend his book, High Output Management, enough. High Output Management, Look it up if, you, if you've never heard of it. Uh, to set the table, back in the mid-80s, Intel had become a dominant player in computer memory, but that market got really competitive in a way that played to Intel's weaknesses. So Andy Grove basically had to transform the company to focus on microprocessors. And here's, here's an excerpt from the book. Intel was known as a memory company and had developed much of the complex technology required to design and manufacture chips. But by 1984, it was clear that Intel could not match the prices of its Japanese rivals. Losing money, Grove uh, recalls that they persevered because they could afford to. He, re he also recalls the turning point in 1985 when he gloomily asked Intel's chairman, Gordon Moore, if we got kicked out and the board brought in a new CEO, what do you think he would do? Moore immediately replied, 
he would get us out of memories. Grove recalls that he went numb and then finally say, said, why shouldn't you and I walk out the door, come back, and do it ourselves? Even after forming that conviction, it took over a year to make the change. The memory business had been the engine that drove research production careers and pride at Intel. Salespeople worried about customer response and researchers resisted the cancellation of memory-based projects. Grove pushed through the exit from the memory business and refocused the company on microprocessors. The success of the new chips propelled Intel into being the world's largest semiconductor company by 1992. So, of course, in hindsight, it seems brilliant, right? But you have to put yourself in Andy's shoes here and have to imagine what it must have been like to be a salesperson or an engineer or marketer or, or Andy himself inside Intel during the mid-80s. That's a grueling experience. And it's particularly brutal for the leader who has to bear the burden of, of making the decision and, and then enforcing it, right, of, of sort of steering the ship in this new direction. And uh, in my mind, that's part of why this is so hard, right? And, and this excerpt captures it perf- perfectly here. Listen to this. When people evade the work of choosing among different paths in the future, then you get vague mom and apple pie goals that everyone can agree on. Such goals are direct evidence of leadership's insufficient will or political power to make or enforce hard choices. And here's another key paragraph on the relationship of of leadership and strategy. Um, Leadership and strategy may be joined in the same person, but they are not the same thing. Leadership inspires and motivates motivates self-sacrifice. Change, for example, requires painful adjustments, and good leadership helps people feel more positively about making those adjustments. Strategy is the craft of figuring out which purposes are worth pursuing and capable of being accomplished. Okay, I'm not going to spend much time on uh, templates and frameworks. I think that's pretty straightforward. Avoid applying formulas universally, and if you're going to use kind of formulaic approaches, just make sure that you understand when to use them and when not to. Uh, I do want to read to you this paragraph uh, that summarizes the risks of trying to manifest things into existence by just thinking positively, like, you know, don't delude yourself into thinking that your thoughts actually materialized anything. Obviously, you might have had an impact on your motivation or, or, or the behavior of others, but it sure as hell doesn't materialize anything. So so here we go. Um, I would not, here, here's from the book, I would not care to fly an aircraft designed by people who focused only on an image of a flying airplane and never considered modes of failure. Nevertheless, the doctrine that one can impose one's visions and desires in the world by the force of thought alone retains a powerful appeal to many people. Its accept, acceptance displaces critical thinking and good strategy. So if someone is trying to get you to suspend disbelief, a la Theranos or FTX or any of these sort of collapses, Enron back in the day, uh, and they're trying to get you to avoid critical thinking on something strategic, run. Run away as fast as you can. Okay, so, okay, that's in, that's enough about bad strategy. Uh, to refresh, good strategy is made up of, of three components. Uh, diagnosis that defines or explains the nature of the challenge, a guiding policy for dealing with the challenge, and a set of coherent actions that are designed to carry out the guiding policy, okay? Uh, it takes a lot of hard work. It takes rigor. Apply it to your specific situation to craft a good strategy. So to, to answer the three questions about diagnosis, guiding policy, and, and coherent actions, basically what is wrong and why, right? That's the diagnosis. What are we going to do about it? That's the guiding policy. And how are we going to do it? That's the coherent actions that you're going to do. And from the book, it says, in business, the challenge is usually dealing with change and competition. 
the first step toward effective strategy is diagnosing the specific structure of the challenge rather than simply naming performance goals. The second step is choosing an overall guiding policy for dealing with a situation that builds on or creates some type of leverage or advantage. The third step is the design of a configuration of actions and resource allocations that implement the chosen guidance policy, right? And I think it bears mentioning like, you know, what is a diagnosis and, and a diagnosis ultimately it's a judgment call, right? Like it's, you're, it's, you're looking at the facts, you're looking at the data and you're debating what you should do with your team and ultimately making a judgment call, right? You're never going to have full conviction, but you need to have some conviction that what you're looking at is, uh, is, is true and it's real and, and that the judgment call that you're making, you know, has uh, a solid chance of success or maybe the best chance of success relative to everything else you're considering. And, and in my mind, that judgment kind of simplifies the situation. It creates a mental model that kind of cuts out the noise and it replaces the complexity of reality with a simpler story that can include the critical variables and, and kind of takes into account only the things that actually matter, right? And that allows us to focus on those things and, and frees up thinking capacity to engage in, uh, in problem solving. And that extra capacity can now focus like a laser on how to overcome the obstacles identified in the diagnosis. And, uh, and, and, and Richard Rummelt says uh, the policy is guiding because it channels action in certain directions without defining exactly what shall be done. And then a bit later, he says a guiding policy creates advantage by anticipating the actions and reactions of others, by reducing the complexity and ambiguity in the situation, by exploiting the leverage inherent in connecting effort, or sorry, in concentrating effort on a pivotal or decisive aspect of the situation, and by creating policies that actions, sorry, by creating policies and actions that are coherent, each building on the other rather than canceling one another out, right? And then he takes us to the final building block of, uh, of coherent action. He says, many people call the guiding policy the strategy and stop there. This is a mistake. Strategy is about action, about doing something. The kernel of a strategy must contain action. Okay, so he uses the example of, uh, of the simplest strategy being something like, number one, you need to build something the market will buy. Number two, so then you listen to your sales and marketing teams to understand what customers will buy. And then number three, then you have a product and engineering team work on a set of cohesive actions that will deliver that, that product that the market will buy. Okay. And so he also comments on the trade-offs uh, between coordinated efforts versus specialized functions. Basically, uh, when to allow uh, a specialized group to work in a decentralized way versus trying to coordinate efforts across functions. He says this, the brilliance of good organization is not in making sure that everything is connected to everything else. Down that road lies a frozen, maladaptive sta stasis. Good strategy and good organization lie in specializing on the right activities and imposing only the essential amount of coordination. So again, uh, basically a judgment call that doesn't have a one-size-fits-all, right? It's easy to dismiss this as unhelpful, but I think it reinforces the message that you have to do the work. You have to understand your situation really well to craft good strategy. Uh, in this case, to decide uh, what pieces should be more independent and move as fast as possible and what pieces uh, might be coordinated, right? Like where, where, it will, where it will pay to slow down a bit to gain the benefits of coordination. Okay, I covered quite a bit and hopefully you have a good understanding of strategy. Uh, I want to invest the last segment of our time together here where we started. 
And a key part of why I think understanding this is so important for you and me, this concept of strategy, uh, the last section of the book is titled Thinking Like a Strategist. And in it, Richard mentions something that I think is critical. So listen to this. In creating strategy, it is often important to take on the viewpoints of others, seeing how the situation looks to a rival or to a customer. Advice to do this is both often given and taken. Yet this advice skips over what is possibly the most useful shift in viewpoint, thinking about your own thinking. Our intentions do not fully control our thoughts. We become acutely aware of this when we are unable to suppress undesired ruminations about risk, disease, and death. A great deal of human thought is not intentional. It just happens. One consequence is that leaders often generate ideas and strategies without paying attention to their internal process of creation and testing. So basically what he's telling us, I think, is that it's not good enough to understand strategy, to master the game you're playing and the players that you're competing with and against. You also have to understand yourself and you have to understand your own thinking. Your, your process is often more important than the outcomes as a focus in and of itself. And, and by the way, if you study some of the greatest coaches of all time, uh, you know, anywhere from Bill Walsh in football to Pep Guardiola in, in soccer, they would absolutely agree with this. Uh, so, so just something to keep in mind. Now, I'm, I'm going to rapid fire this section at you because I think it's relatively easy to digest. Uh, and so here we go. Let me read this to you. Good strategy is built on functional knowledge about what works, what doesn't, and why. A new strategy is, in the language of science, a hypothesis, and its implementation is an experiment. So he talks about how good strategy is a creative activity. It's not mechanical. It's subject to inspiration and, and insight, um, and, and therefore it requires analysis and experimentation. And he talks about it this way. He says, a good business strategy deals with the edge between the known and the unknown. Again, it is competition with others that pushes us to edges of knowledge. Only there are only there are found the opportunities to keep ahead of rivals. There is no avoiding it. That uneasy sense of ambiguity you feel is real. It is the scent of opportunity. So, you know, I thought that was great. And then there's this other section here as well where he says, to generate a strategy, one must put aside the comfort and security of pure deduction and launch into the murkier waters of induction, analogy, judgment, and insight. So, you know, th this section has a beautiful case study on Starbucks and how Howard Schultz's vision for a social kind of quality coffee experience required a radical change in, uh, in consumer habits and how he imported a concept from Italy to the U.S. And then through strategic experimentation and tons of adjustments, you know, throughout that process, he built it into what Starbucks eventually became. And so... Um, so that, that, that I really, I really enjoyed. And if you haven't heard, you know, read, um, the, the books by Howard Schultz, I highly recommend those, uh, apart from treating strategy in a scientific way though, I, you also have to overcome the limits of your brain, which is sort of the next section that he talks about, uh, kind of what I, what I like to call hardware limitations of, of your own, of your own brain, basically how our brain shortcuts things because it's useful in situations that are more trivial than the ambiguity that we often find ourselves in when we're doing strategy. So for this, Richard has three suggestions. He says, um, the first thing you should do is you should collect tools to guide your own attention and, and kind of fight blind spots. The second thing is you should always question your own judgment. And the third thing is you should recur, you should record uh, judgment calls that you make so that you can review them over time and you can sort of build your own, your own feedback loops. Um, 
you know, the, the next thing he does just for the first one, uh, is he offers us a few of his tools and the first one he talks about is kind of framing strategic questions into the diagnosis, the guiding policy and coherent actions model, but not using it as a formulaic template. And, and you can definitely see risks of that, right? Like you could definitely just build a template that has those three things and you could try to fill them in every time that you, that you're about to do a strategic exercise. He says, don't, don't do that. Like use it as a mental model for approaching strategy, but start with a blank piece of paper and just go figure out what the problem is, right? Look for real insights, analyze the data, talk to people, debate. And to the extent that you have time, do it more, do it more rigorously to the extent that you have less time, you know, try to be as, as rigorous and as effective as possible in the time constraint that you have. Um, most important of all, that's another tool that he, that he talks about is making sure that you have a diagnosis, right? Like identify that root cause and understand why, like understand the rationale as to why you're saying that's the diagnosis. Uh, he also tries to these, what he says, destroy his own insights and strategies. So basically question himself rather question your judgment. Uh, this is where I think biographies and, and podcasts like the founders podcast help a ton. If you can build a mental model of people that you would want to check you on ideas, so people that you would consider like part of your own personal board of directors that might check you on the things that you're that you're making decisions off of and, and why, then you can in a way run your ideas by them in your head, right? Like you can almost run that algorithm, that mental model of this person and have them question you in your head. Um, like, you know, how would Steve Jobs or, or Edwin Land or, or Andy Grove react to your strategy? And you can kind of ask that question and try to run that. And then you can use that mental model to answer. And, and try to break uh, break apart your own weak ideas. Um, of course, you know if you have people in your life that can help you do this, you absolutely should do that as well. You should war room ideas with them, and uh, and I do that all the time, and, I, and it makes a big difference. the uh, The final chapter in this section of the book, and thinking like a strategist, uh, like a strategist, reminds us that psychology is a key part of all of this, and it points out some key psychological concepts to keep in mind, like, uh, like thinking that this time is different or falling prey to the sunk cost fallacy or, or following the crowd, you know, to combat these, he recommends studying psychology and most of all studying history because events are seldom novel. So history rhymes. I'm sure you've heard that before. So if you study enough history, you'll be able to recognize patterns in a way that seems prescient, even though you'll just be reacting to like an obvious cause and effect dynamic, right? That has played out before and, and you've seen it, you've read about it, you've studied it. So to you, it becomes obvious, like, you know, if this now, then this will happen. And you can sort of be be smarter about how you make decisions and, and build strategy. Uh, and that's where I'll leave it for Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Richard Rummelt. If you found this valuable, I can't recommend this book enough. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to support the show by rating it if you haven't already. I'll talk to you soon.